with much of the workforce in 2020 operating from the friendly confines of their own homes, nothing became more clear than this. Tech skills are no longer a luxury, but a necessity. Leveling up those skills, though, is a team effort, and it's incumbent on employers to make sure that they are providing their employees with the proper opportunities to expand their knowledge and, in effect, their career potential. Joe Atkinson is the Vice Chair and Chief Products and Technology Officer at PwC, one of the largest professional services firms in the country and a company that is setting a precedent when it comes to upskilling its workforce. Everybody should have an opportunity to grow their skills. Doesn't matter where you are in the organization. If you have a desire and an inclination, then we believe that employers have a degree of obligation, almost like an employee benefit. It's the new 401k to make those assets of learning technical skills available. On this episode of IT Visionaries, Joe details why PwC places such an emphasis on upskilling, the importance of growth throughout an employee's career journey, and how the employee experience is shifting how PwC conducts its business. Enjoy this episode. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Innovate fast, empower every employee, and scale with confidence from anywhere with a customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com platform. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of IT Visionaries. And today we have the Vice Chair and Chief Products and Technology Officer of PricewaterhouseCoopers, otherwise now known as PwC, Joe Atkinson. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Glad to be with you today. Thanks. All right. So PwC is a huge company, hundreds of thousands plus employees. Where does the CTO sit in this organization? Because for most of us consumers outside of the accounting world, we don't use PwC products. Yep. No, it's a great question, Albert. I, so, so where we sit from, a, from an organizational perspective is I report to our senior partner in the U.S. So I have responsibility for um, our complete technology strategy, all the technologies that we use to enable our services to clients, as well as all the technologies that we build and deliver to clients in the form of products or other technologies they may license from us. So I've got the full stack and actually given the, the importance of that strategy, we have it sitting in our C-suite. Gotcha. And so these are custom proprietary products that are used between PwC and its clients. That's correct. So there's, so there's basically two buckets. So PwC, worldwide professional services, right? We provide accounting, assurance, uh, the, the things that most people think of us for first in terms of our uh, assurance to financial statements and the, and the protection of the public markets. And then you have our tax businesses, which are really advising clients on all the complexities of tax. And you have our consulting business where we're helping clients solve whatever the business problems are that might be on the plate. So one set of the technologies we worry about, of course, are the technologies that support our people. Just the IT experience they have every day and what tools and technologies do we give them so they can do their job. The second set of technologies are the tools that they use to deliver those services. So think of those as ones that both our people and our clients might be using. And then there's a third bucket that, that is relatively new to us, but this is, this is why we've created the products and technology organization. The third bucket are where we see opportunities in the market based on our industry expertise, based, the capability, based on the capability of our people and our brand, where we can deliver a product to a client that they may license and use across their enterprise. So then on a personal level, which of those three buckets do you have preference for? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. I, of course, I love them all equally. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a good parent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think I have to love them all equally. But, but, but kidding aside, it's like 
when you have 275,000 people around the world and, and we have the great privilege of a workforce that is well-trained, well-educated, they're, they're ambitious, they're really, really capable people. When, when you have that kind of organization, they challenge you to up your game every single day. And, and I, I do love that part. So one of the unique or one of the classic questions every technology company is faced with is this concept of building or buying their own product suite or their services suite. Yep. So in this case, PwC has chosen to per, you know, build its own systems. In some cases where, where you're in charge, you're building certain systems for your clients. I'm curious, what is it that you saw that the marketplace couldn't provide for you that says PwC says, hey, we need to build our own technology to service, whether it's in the support of your people, whether it's to deliver your existing services across you know, accounting tax or consulting. Give us an idea of some of the the problem sets that your company is solving, that you and your team are solving that require you to build your own technology for it? Yeah, it's a really great question. And, and let me start with, there are a ton of places where we are partnering with really premier technology organizations, right? So to your point, the first objective is not to go figure out how to build. The first objective is how to solve, right? And then you go look at what are the assets that are available to you to solve the problem. Having said that, there are a couple places in the marketplace um, where we do see gaps and we have seen gaps. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples because a couple of these products we're, we're really focused on right now in the market. We have a product that we call Digital On Demand. One of the things that we're really proud of at PwC is we have taken our transformation journey across all of our people around the world and we have equipped them with technology and tools to help them innovate on the job. We call it citizen-led development. And we put automation tools in their hands and data visualization tools. And we really basically said to them, you know the, the work that you do better than we could ever know it from the C-suite. We're going to equip you. We're going to train you. That'll give you value whether you're here at PwC for your career or wherever your career takes you. And by the way, we're going to give value because you're going to solve client problems. Our people then went out and in, in the capacity that they had and in the tool set that they had available to them, they created something on the order of 7,000 assets that we now use to deliver services to our clients. When they went out to clients and they started to apply those assets, our clients started to ask us, where did that come from? How do I get one of those? And so digital on demand is basically taking the, the output of our couple hundred thousand people around the world, all that innovation and all the effort that they've put in to solve problems. And now we're taking those, we're putting them through kind of an enterprise grade hardening process, and we're putting that out in digital on demand so our clients can consume the benefit of our citizen-led innovation. That was entirely market-driven. The clients asked for it. And that's the kind of thing that we really look for is, where do you see that, that opportunity where a client sees a problem, they see us as a trusted provider that can help solve it, and we have the scale and the technology asset to do it. So that's one example out of a few, but that's, that's one I would start with. Well, let, let's dive into that a little bit. So when you said it's citizen-led development, are you telling me that you have 7,000 or more people inside your organization that know how to code or were they providing feature requests? Like, how did that happen? How did that happen? Yeah. So I will tell you, I've got more than 7,000 people that know how to code. Um, I've got uh, now, so in the US, I'll give you the US stats. We have roughly 45,000 of our 55,000 people that have spent time learning how to develop um, automations and learning how to code, particularly with a focus on data, right? Because you think about our businesses out and we're constantly exchanging data with clients and conducting analysis on their behalf. Sure. So we went long on data tools and data capabilities. What we discovered was that the, the traditional, what I'll characterize as the traditional model, if you need somebody that's deep in the technical sciences to be your coder, now, that traditional model, there's a whole lot of reasons that that's the case. But we also discovered there's a whole population of people that are willing to dig into that kind of capability and learn it. 
And that's what we saw. We saw our people learn it. We then opened up a program and we said, if you have that desire and skill, we, we will actually develop your skills alongside all the work that you're doing in the field and for our clients. Over a two-year period, you can go deep on those skills. We had 3,500 of our people raise their hands and say, I'm ready to redirect my career to go do that. And that combination of 45,000 people trained in what I would characterize as a relatively base capability there, plus these 3,000-ish, um, what we call our digital accelerators, and then add into that that we're hiring data scientists, we're hiring architects, we're hiring software engineers to deliver all of that technology experience that we have both inside the firm and out. I've now got probably more than 10,000 people that I would put into a bucket of, of pretty solid. Some of them are exceptional, obviously, in terms of those technicals. They're all exceptional, just to be clear. But some of them are exceptional with respect to that coding capability. And now I can direct that unbelievable asset of talent and capability to where the client problems are. So that, that's been uh, one of the most fun parts of the journey that we've been on over the last few years. So I'm just doing some quick math based on what you were talking about, right? Yeah. 45,000 plus of people with some level of development shops in some capacity. You have 3,500 plus people upskilling in this arena. You're 10,000 something data scientists plus whatever your PwC is hiring around the world right now. And like you said, it's probably a lot of open requisitions for this type of skill. Yeah. Talking about your 275,000 plus person organization, I mean, you're getting close to 25% of these people are technical. Yeah, I, I would love to keep climbing that number because I one of the things I've said more times than I can count now is we used to characterize jobs as tech jobs and non-tech jobs. And I truly believe that that distinction is going away. And I want to be clear, like there are people who are, PhDs in computer sciences and deep, deep software engineers. And I would love to have tens of thousands of those. I don't, I've got, I've got our population that we have, but I don't have tens of thousands of those. But what we're trying to do is bring a degree of capability to everyone so that they are not intimidated by the tech and they have a build capability where the tools and capabilities that are available to them can help solve a problem. And this is actually, this is actually a, a um, compliment to the technology partners that we're working with. That, that accessibility is getting better and better and better in terms of the ease of what I'll call those citizen-led tools. And I think that combination has really helped us unlock that capacity. So that, that citizen-led development concept that you're pushing down is very similar to what other big tech companies or big companies have started moving, which is, you know, we need more people. Um, robotics are getting so good. If you don't learn something else, we won't need people to move boxes as we're just not going to need as many people to move boxes. Yeah. And so they came out and they said, Hey, we're, we're going to teach people how to develop, uh, whether it was going to be service robotics or work in cloud services, or basically, like you said, upskilling to a new level. Now you're doing similar things where it's volunteer led. Do you see a place where in the near future, where it's going to be like almost required, like, Hey, everyone, you got to learn this. Cause you were kind of saying how, you know, every job's getting close to like becoming a tech job or tech enabled job. Yeah. Do you see a place where it's going to PwC with like, hey, all 200,000 of you remaining, you have to come in and learn some new skills? Yeah. I, so the short answer is yes. And I, I you know, the, it's a funny thing when you've got an organization like ours. If you start out by saying, hey, I need you to do this and therefore you must do it, you put a completely different tone on the question, right? And what, we've, <laughs> what we've said to our people is, and by the way, our people are great. Like if, if we, we are kind of an ethics and integrity and compliance driven organization. They feel like there's a rule they got to follow. They're going to, they're going to follow it, right? They'll follow it thoughtfully, but they're going to follow it. But we didn't want this to be rules-based. We wanted this to be inspirational. We wanted to make the accessible capabilities, something that people aspired to go after. 
not something that they felt like had been imposed upon them by their employer. And for that, the, the discussion was really, really um, one of the most interesting ones I've had in my career as our leadership team kind of wrestled with this question of how do, we, how do we both make these assets available, but inspire people to consume them? And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you two things. One is we massively underestimated how much our people wanted to consume this kind of capability and asset and training. They were all in from the beginning. And I, I do think that that was in part because we didn't tell them you must do this. We told them that this is available to you. But the other thing that I think mattered a lot is we made a decision, and I'll, I'll give credit to the tech companies that are out there saying that they want to bring people, regardless of their role, into skills like, like folks that are working on warehouse floors, et cetera. Everybody should have an opportunity to grow their skills. It doesn't matter where, you're, where you are in the organization. If you have a desire and an, and an inclination, then we believe that employers have a degree of obligation, almost like an employee benefit. It's the new 401k to make those assets of learning technical skills available. And so one of the first decisions that our senior partner, Tim Ryan, made is Tim went out to all of our people and he said, look, it doesn't matter what your role is or your title or your tenure in the firm. I don't care what department you work in. I don't care how long you've been here. We're making these assets available to you because we believe that you're going to need them and that, it, that our obligation to help you navigate not just your career at PwC, but your career through your lifetime is to equip you to compete in an, in an age of really incredible disruption. And we positioned it for what we felt, which was this was a benefit to employees. It wasn't just a requirement. This wasn't the next training program. This was an asset that we were making available to employees. And I'll come back to where I started, which is we massively underestimated how excited they were going to be about that. And they, they picked up that, the proverbial baton and they started running with it, which has been just great. You know, it's fascinating that people want to volunteer into these new uh, job skills. Uh, one of the things that you see in the tech world specifically is a lot of job hopping where people are saying, hey, maybe I'm not getting my skills fast enough at this organization or they've got me pigeonholed into a role that I don't really want and maybe I, I can go, go somewhere else. A lot of our interviewee guests, our interview guests, their companies are based in Silicon Valley where there's a lot of, even at the tech level, right? It's not just salespeople, it's tech people hopping from role to role to role. Yep. One of the things that you're talking about is a significant investment in training uh, you obviously have to, when someone is training, for example, they're obviously not producing whatever their core skill for what they were hired was, was for. Yep. I know PwC is one of the big four, so it's operating on a billable hours concept. Yep. When you make this investment, how do you, incur, how do you know these people will stay with you? I guess that's one of the magic questions. Or do you just <laughs> say, we don't, and we just say, we're going to do our best to upskill the people we have. If they stay, they stay. If they don't, it's unfortunate, but let's figure out how to get more people, more skills. Yeah, there, there's a ton to your question. So let me let me come at two pieces. So one is I'll, I'll come to the to the end point, which is exactly where we are. Look, we we think as an employer of choice, we want to attract talented people. Many of them are at the start of their career, but we hire people all stages of their career, right? And so we want to equip them to be successful. If they are successful with us, awesome. If they are successful with us and then go launch their career someplace else, they're probably going to be a great client one day. So we, we win on either side, side of that. So it's all good. And of course, the individual wins because they've got a great career path. But I'm going to come back to something else you said, right? Like we're built on a billable hours model. Yeah. One of the things that we've recognized is we cannot stay on a billable hours model. We're one of the last few organizations and, and business models that are really an activity and a price point kind of model. Nobody's in that world anymore, right? They want outcomes, they want solutions, they want, they want business benefits. And so that, that hours model is under tremendous strain. And that was the underlying business reason that we said, we've got to equip people with different skills. We've got to get them to automate their own jobs 
the tasks on their own plate. And we've got to give them the ability to help us reshape this business so that ultimately we can move more and more of this business from an hours and rate model to a solutions and business outcome model. And by the way, a big part of that is quality of life for our people. Like if you're going to measure people on on an activity that's billable hours, the natural reaction of a hardworking person is I'm going to put in hours. That's, that's like a terrible model, right? (laughs) Over time, we're we're killing our people. We're running hours, the quality work, how much quality can you hope for when somebody's working 14, 16 hour days? That's a model we really felt strongly. We needed to continue to, to innovate on that model. It doesn't go away overnight, but we need to innovate that model. I'm telling you right now, I am married to someone who works at another big four. Uh, if she, when she hears this episode, she's, her ears are going to perk up. <laughs> send, her, send her my way. Send her my way. We're all in. We're working the, we're working the hours and we're working the quality. We'll get her some coding skills. We'll get her all fixed up. It'd be great. <laughs> this is awesome. One of the things that's always challenging is when we talk about that retention, I want to talk about you specifically in your career Yeah, uh, because you've been at PwC for, I mean, I can't quite do all the math here, but <laughs> You've been there for you do more math than I am. You're talking to a big four guy and you've done more math on this, this podcast than I have. So it's impressive. So let me know how many years, cause I've lost track. Well, LinkedIn says 27 years and seven months. I think that's right on the money as usual. They've got it right. But I don't know if you, you know, you gaffed in any roles or anything like that. So LinkedIn suggests that you've been at PwC for over 27 years. When you say it that way, it sounds like a long time. So, well, it's a different, the reason why I want to ask you this is because it is different from what we see a lot of today. A lot of, a lot of today we just talked about earlier is a lot of of job hopping. Now it looks like your career has progressed obviously quite nicely within PwC, but I'm curious what was unique about your career experience that encouraged you to say, Hey, I'm going to stay here. It sounds like you got to do a lot of cool things uh, throughout your career, but uh, you know, I'd love to hear from your perspective. Yeah, it's, um, it's amazing because I will tell you honestly, when I started out, my wife would tell you this story too. When I started out, I told her I'd be there two or three years tops. And I thought, I'm going to start my career because we, we are a great organization. And actually, all the firms like ours are great organizations to start careers. And a lot of, a lot of people do that. And I thought, well, I'll be here for two or three years. I'll, I'll work those crazy hours. I'll get some great experience. And then I'll, and then I'll go out and get a different, different kind of job. One of the things that I love about the firm is, is two or three years in, the kind of roles and the jobs were changing. And I thought, oh, okay, this next thing's kind of interesting. Let me see where this thing takes us. And then two years after that, the roles are changing again. It's one of the unique things I think about consultancies and professional services. We can, in, in many ways, deliver the benefit of the job hopping in the way that, that people seek it out. Because most people, I think, when they're seeking out that job hopping, they're doing it to grow their career. They're doing it to get different experiences and, get, and kind of get a collection of different capabilities and experiences over their career. And so uh, one of the great things about serving companies across all industries that we've got a global footprint, we've got services that, that span a very, very wide range of business issues from strategy consulting through technology innovation and implementation of large-scale enterprise systems there's a little bit of all of that in some places, a lot of bit of all of that across the spectrum of what we do. And I have benefited from that, I think, probably 100 times, Albert, in my career, honestly, over and over again. Uh, I, I've often said that if I've ever been bored at the firm, it, it might have been hours. Maybe it would go to days, but it was never weeks because uh, things would change and you could kind of shake it up again. And, and that, that plus um, the fact that every day I'm surrounded by really incredibly talented people of integrity, that's a pretty good combination that, um, that has kept me there for apparently 27 years and seven months. <laughs> <laughs> and so one of the things that you'll see over this, or, you know, I'm curious because you have a unique perspective is because we're in your current role, you're talking about developing 
building tech products for your clients or for internal teams to use. Talk about that evolution because you've gotten to see from probably, you know, like the, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't know exactly what you were doing in 1993. I'm not going to lie, but, but <laughs> obviously technology's progressed quite a bit. Talk about how, like how I'm, I'm curious for others to understand like scope and scale. It used to take X number of people to do a job. Now it takes Y. It used to take X number of hours for people to do a job. Now it takes Y. Like kind of give an idea of how, how much technology has advanced the output of PwC. You're going to make me tell the, the old people, old technology stories. Is that what you're going to make me do now? I'm willing to do it, but I, but it always dates me and that always feels a little painful, but I will, I'll tell you. Yeah, but like the, it's cool to show like how fast things evolve yeah. because if you do it, well, I'll tell you what, if you do it in like small gaps, like it took us, <laughs> this is why we were hard. If you do it in gaps, like it took us 10 years to go from here to here. Yeah. And then it took us two years to go from here, there to there. Honestly, it's, it's one of the most, um, it's just fascinating, right? When you think about what we were doing and how we were doing it and what the business looked like. So I'll give you a couple of factoids of when I started in 1993. In 1993, I shared a telephone with one of my other uh, colleagues, uh, another associate, Carol Auer. She's still at the firm, actually. She's phenomenal. So Carol and I shared a telephone. So if you called our phone number, depending on who got to the office first, one or the other of us answered. So because, you know, that's what you did in 1993. You needed a phone sitting on the desk. We did not have an enterprise email system at the time. Um, there was no enterprise email in 1993, right? So we were starting to um, kind of see some of them develop, but there wasn't really a consistent platform that we had deployed across the firm. Most of us did not have laptops issued to us when we joined in 93. If you needed a computer, there was like a, there was like a set of computers down on the, at that time, 22nd floor, I guess, uh, in our office in Philadelphia. You went down if you needed a computer. It was now, having said that, it moved really quickly. So 18 months in from where I was, uh, we were rapidly issuing, you know, color laptops to everybody. And that, that happened really quickly because prior to that, um, you had access to them, but they were not, they were not um, readily accessible to everybody. When we were doing um, a lot of the assurance work that we do, think about the kind of systems that we would pull information from. We used to do um, work for some of our clients where we would basically have to recalculate big portions of their, their journal entries and activity. Well, I remember pulling um, data tapes from clients. So clients would, would literally send me a UPS or a FedEx package or postal service hour. They got it to me. It would show up in the office and I would unload that tape and I would run data, I would run data downloads off of a tape uh, machine. And that would take hours, like hours, just to get the data to a point that I had it on a, on a server in, the, in our, again, our computer lab, because of course you couldn't do that on your laptop, um, in a computer lab to do that. And then we would process the analysis of that. And I, I remember one time we had a staff, staff guy that left, um, left the analysis running. At, uh, he was in the office late, 10 or 11 o'clock at night. He got back, we grabbed coffee, and we watched it finish at 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> That was, and that was like a, a client. It wasn't like we were trying to recalculate, you know, a day's worth of trades on the New York Stock Exchange. We were trying to calculate a client's particular set of data. Now, fast forward 10 years, right? 10 years from that, we were doing massive amounts of work with data. We still didn't have the same technical capacity that we have today, but more, more work with data than, than certainly we were doing 10 years prior to that. And over that time, that's where you also started to see just the emergence of connectivity and networks. So of course, you know, we're no longer shipping technology assets around in the forms of tapes. That's a terrible idea, by the way, <laughs> um, for a whole host of reasons. 
And now, you know, go all the way through 27 years. And now you look at what we have and we have, instead of, you know, Joe Atkinson in a conference room on our 22nd floor working on a data tape, I've got PhDs and AI thinking about what the future is of not just accounting, but, but business, right? I've got teams looking at uh, predictive models so that we can better, not only better serve clients, but have better insights into kind of how the industries are going to treat our clients so that we can be uh, cognizant of the risks in markets. We can be cognizant of the financial reporting issues in markets. We can help our clients manage their tax burdens, all of those, all of those things that, that happen. That has been um, astonishing. And of course, you know, I'll, I'll come to the pandemic that we're all living through. When the um, virus started to clearly become a threat to business and a, and a threat to people, most importantly, but a threat to business and operations, there we were back in um, essentially January, February, we started to see it across our global footprint. And in the US, it was very clear that we were going to have disruption, but none of us knew exactly the scale of the disruption at that time. And I, I remember flying back from San Francisco the first week of March, and I wasn't feeling well. And, you know, at one time, if you weren't feeling well, you'd go to the office and tell everybody you're not feeling well, stay away from me. Yeah. Well, that in this environment today, I'm like, I'm not going to the office. Nobody's going to the office. That's a bad idea, right? So you stay home when you're not feeling well. So I stayed home that first week of March. And by the time I got to, I think, the Wednesday of that following week, we had shut down all of our offices in the U.S., and essentially within a seven-day period, our technology teams took 55,000 people that had been working in the offices, 275,000 around the world, again, this amazing scale, and we transitioned them all to a work-from-home environment. And as much as it was disruptive, we really didn't miss a beat. And if you had tried to do that in 1993, I mean, I was still grabbing the messages when I would come back from lunch, like <laughs> on the little sheets of paper that the team would record them on. So now I realize that's 27 years. That's a lot of space. And the last thing I'll say on this is the pace, the pace of that innovation and change. Everybody, there's so many different ways that smart people say that, you know, this is the slowest the pace of change will ever be. And it's all true. It's all true because the disruption that's happening is literally hitting every aspect of our lives. We all feel it in so many ways, but it is absolutely profound in the implications for, for businesses at scale. So one of the things that in your story that you can tell is, and if, if you think to my just personal observation, the amount, the sheer number of business applications have been created yeah. just continues to grow. Yes. And even though big companies consolidate them and acquire companies and bring them into their tech stack, there's going to be 10 other engineers right behind it developing products in a similar category. And this has not stopped. So on one side, we see tremendous innovation, better products, better services, continue to evolve for us. But on the other side, the devil, the devil's advocate says, how is there so much room for all these different things? Because like, for example, there's like, I think there's like 50 e-signature products now. Like how can there be that much market for this many things? <laughs> I'm curious on your perspective on these business applications and how many there are. Cause not only, like you said, you have technology partners where you use them, but you've also found opportunities to build your own. Yeah. And so I'm curious, I'm just like to hear your philosophy on why are there so many business applications and where, including in many categories, we were joking with the producers before the show started, like web conferencing, why are there so many and how come, how can there be more being created? It doesn't seem possible. So a couple, a couple of thoughts. One is, you know, the markets are big, right? There's a ton of opportunity out there for companies. And when companies see a space and they think that they can do something better, most companies are going to go after that. And I think a lot of times when we talk about innovation, we all have a little bit of a, 
maybe a romantic idea that innovation is like the first light bulb or the first car or the first electric vehicle, right? And look, if you're first, that's a pretty good place to be. But the reality is a lot of great innovations have come from the third light bulb or the third car or the third electric vehicle. And I think that that idea of understanding if the market is growing in a space, that there is room for multiple players and that if you can innovate and, and outperform your, comp- your competition, yes, you're going into a competitive space, but you've got an opportunity to actually create value for whoever your, your stakeholders are. So I think that's one really important point. But your other point on the on kind of this explosion of apps, right? I was sitting with my brother-in-law one day and um, we, we were just laughing about, you know, the, the early days my mobile device would have a page or two of apps. Well, now you, you could you know, like page through my, my, my <laughs> phone for a while before you get to the end of my apps. And I've got, you know, collections of apps that probably a whole bunch of them that I haven't opened up in a while. That uh, kind of proliferation of solutions, and I see it as a consumer, but we see it as a, as a business as well, right? I've got thousands of applications in our environment. That creates incredible complexity because now I've got these value chains in the organization. And I've got these technical chains in the organization where a particular piece of the chain fails and suddenly I've got a cascading issue that I've got to deal with. I think that issue of complexity and the growth of uh, kind of micro solutions that are out to solve a very specific problem I think that that is in some ways the next really interesting, I'll call it opportunity, maybe trend line in technology, which is people that can pull together larger pieces of the chain and provide those seamless experiences. We all talk about experience now, which is not something we always talked about. If you can provide an experience that's really integrated and seamless, you can create an advantage. And I think that's part of the reason you see a lot of people coming back and getting into video conferencing and other, other spots is because they can provide a more seamless experience. So I think that experience piece matters a lot. And I also think that, that it's one of the other reasons that you see this emergence and much greater emphasis on things like standardizing APIs and all the places where we need to make sure that interconnectivity is, is, is easier to accomplish. So that brings us full circle back to one of your three babies. You were talking about you guys build technology products to support other people inside. Here's the build technologies to deliver your services. And then there's that third element, which is potentially consumer market products and services. Talk about some of those things that you see, I mean, whatever you can share. I'd love to hear some of the things that you, th- you think are going to go to market from PwC yeah. and what, what they do and what it is that your team has learned over time that makes you think that this is going to be a differentiator. So let me give you, I'll give you two other examples in addition to digital on demand. So one of the, one of the products and our, look, our, our market is primarily enterprises, right? So there may be some moment where we open up and, and there's an opportunity for us to connect with, with consumers. And actually there, there's a recent example now that I say that it's primarily enterprises, but when the pandemic hit, we had an application that we had developed in house that we had typically sold to clients called the digital fitness assessment. And it was basically an app on the phone um, where you could go into the app and if you were new to technology or if you were just trying to kind of climb your own digital acumen uh, mountain, if you will, it would help you with an assessment of where you were relative to your peers. So it had kind of this credit score model that would say, hey, this is where you are on a digital fitness. And then it would create a fitness plan for you. And the fitness plan was basically knowledge bites, right? So how can I learn different pieces of information? And it would be from all kinds of different sources. It might be publicly available stuff. It might be stuff that, that the firm developed so that you could grow your digital fitness score. That digital fitness assessment app is still available in the, in the app store to a consumer for free. 
because we opened it up at the pandemic because we believed that it was really important that people be building these skills, particularly as everybody was moving online and technology was becoming so important in the way that we worked every day. So that, that now, I was actually just looking at that the other day, we have 80,000 people on that application since we launched it after the, the pandemic. Now I realize there's apps that do a lot bigger than that, but for, for a brand like ours to be connected on digital acumen with 80,000 people, we're really excited about that. And we've gotten some amazing feedback from you know, school teachers or people that were in career disruptions or people coming out of the military and looking to start their careers where it gave them a baseline. We had, we had one individual call us and tell us, or send us an email and they said, I've now started a master's degree in data because of what I learned on the digital fitness app. I didn't think it was accessible to me until I did that. That's, that just blows us away. Like our team is so proud of that. And if, if that were the only story like that, we'd be pretty happy about it. So that's one that it's actually kind of a consumer, consumer opportunity. But then there's another one, and it's actually also related to the pandemic. A number of years ago, um, the hotel industry had, had some challenges. They needed to make sure that individuals working in large hotels could call for help if they were in a situation where they needed assistance. Somebody um, at, at some kind of risk, whatever the situation may be, but if you were an individual and you happened to be working, say, as a housekeeper on the 17th floor of a large facility and you needed assistance, they needed to be able to get people there. So we created a technology to help that basically provided a, a button that the individual could push that using ambient signals in the, in the organization or in the facility, because it didn't require a new infrastructure, using ambient signals in the uh, facility, that that individual could ident be identified quickly as, hey, they're working in room 1705, they've asked for assistance. So that's been really helpful to the, to the hotel industry, but now I'm going to fast forward to the pandemic hits. And we're all trying to figure out and trying to solve for the new work environment in a pandemic environment and even in a post-pandemic environment. And one of the things that became very important was contact tracing. If I had an individual in my workplace who unfortunately had, had been diagnosed positive with COVID, one of the quick things that you want to be able to do is identify other people they came in contact with so you can get them into quarantine quickly. And we had this experience as an employer. We had one of our people... Uh, in March, right as the pandemic was hitting in our New York office that unfortunately was diagnosed with COVID. And when we tried to do the contact trace in the normal way, which is, okay, let's see what floors they were on and where they were working, we very quickly had to send over 2,000 people into quarantine because it was impossible to actually figure out with precision who they'd actually had contact with. We took the application that we developed in the housekeeping space and we now applied it to contact tracing. So we had this privacy-first, enterprise-driven solution that's basically to help employers conduct contact traces when their individuals are exposed to the COVID virus. And that, that isn't a business that we would have necessarily woken up in and said, let's go get into that business. But we had the asset. We had this very compelling need that our clients were struggling through and we had the team to help solve it. And now we have that, that asset is actually helping protect now hundreds of thousands of our clients, employees, as people figure out when they can return to work, et cetera. So that's, that's one of the products that we have in the portfolio. And again, it's one that I think is interesting because most people wouldn't necessarily think of PwC in that space, but it's a place where the combination of tech and the asset, they were there, the market need was there, and our teams responded. I mean, that's what's always fascinating. Whenever I get the chance to talk to someone from the big four PwC talking to you, is the outside world thinks of, I was just say, I'm going to make generalizations, right? But the outside world says, okay, they, they just do accounting. Yeah. No one thinks and realizes that these big companies do huge technology innovation solutions. In fact, when you see an enterprise application, 
a lot of times it wasn't developed by the enterprise. It was developed by one of the groups like yours. I'm curious from your perspective, why it is that you think that, because PwC serves all types of industries, automobile manufacturers, hotels, yep. you know, any big company, you know, any company that reaches a certain size and scale, they call on you guys to solve their business problems, typically, and that's solved with some, you know, technology is a part of it. Yeah. How did you guys become like basically the world's biggest agency? Like you're a tech agency, but nobody knows. It. Everyone thinks you're, you know, you guys count beans. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's look, that's the real question, right? And and um, I actually, when I reflect on the firm, it's and honestly, I'll come back to the why why anybody sticks around a place for 27 years and seven months, as you've reminded me today. The firm is trusted. And we take that trust really, really seriously, right? But our clients trust the firm because the firm's legacy, where we come from, uh, that that really important accounting uh, and and kind of integrity of markets piece that's so core to our DNA, that runs through the culture of the firm in many ways. And you might immediately say, wow, how do you take an accounting culture and get innovation and technology? But it's actually, to me, it's more the solution orientation, but maybe even more importantly, it's the integrity culture. It's the trust culture. It's do the right thing for your client. If a client's got a problem, help them solve the problem. And that, that is in the firm's DNA going back 170 years, right? We're, we're actually a really old enterprise by most people's standards. But the firm's ability to reinvent itself because we are so oriented to what our clients are asking for and because, uh, and again, we, we take the trust seriously, never take it for granted. You work to, to support it every day. But because they trust us, our clients come to us with their tough problems. And because we live in the, in the ecosystems that we do, we're working with all these large-scale technology partners um, and technology companies. We know the landscape because we see so many different situations in so many different industries that we are in a position to help our clients navigate through all that complexity and actually land an answer. And probably comes back to something else we've already talked about on the on this podcast, which is there are very, very few answers today that do not require, let alone the application of technology, the integration of innovation and technology to get to a good answer. And and so that in some ways seems like an inevitable evolution of our business model. Well, speaking of full circles, I got another problem for you to solve. You ready? Okay. Earlier in the conversation, we you know, we we're talking about evolution, how things keep changing and, you know, it just Technology is always part of the solution. You had mentioned earlier back in the day when you guys were exchanging tapes and how that is actually a terrible way to do things. Yes. I want you to know that the movie industry is still doing it. And here's the reason why. As cameras have gotten better, memory cards have gotten bigger. And so they're able to capture more footage than ever on remote locations in 4K quality or whatever quality that is. Do you know no one can edit that until all those memory cards get shipped from location one to location two? Because... For example, let's say I'm doing work in the desert. Just let's say I'm doing I'm doing a film shoot in Death Valley. Let's just assume that. Yeah. Well, there's no Wi-Fi there. Yeah. There's no there's no yeah. there's no internet signal there. And if there is, maybe I go to a hotel that's nearby. Right. It doesn't have enough backhaul or upload speed to move terabytes of data. You're gonna be back in that story where you're waiting for a week for that thing to move over that kind of network. That's right. So I want you to know that as, as advanced that we've come, that problem that you talked about is still a problem. Nobody has a solution right now. Today drives literally drives are FedEx from point from the shoot location to the studio. Yeah. <laughs> you know what? It's funny. So I've had the privilege of doing work in the media and entertainment industry. I've had clients in that space. And uh, not only are you absolutely right. You reminded me that even some of the distribution 
uh, of film into theaters is still happening that way for the same reasons, finish film into theaters. So yeah, that's an interesting problem. We'll go, we'll go think about that one. There you go. <laughs> well, Joe, I love a good, interesting problem. <laughs> and I love movies too. So this one, this one hits a whole bunch of things. So this is great. Yeah. Someone's got to hire Joe to figure this out. Solve this one. <laughs> love it. Because <laughs> we're, we're luckily for us, we're an audio format only. Our content is easily loaded to the cloud, but if yeah. we did all video stuff, it would be a big challenge. Well, you know, it's, it's I mean, it is fascinating, right? When you think about how, how much progress has been made on transport of large amounts of data, but that you're constantly chasing that, right? Because as to your point, as the cameras get better, but, but it applies to everything else. As everything else gets better, yeah. you know, there was a time when I only wanted a slice of information when I'm trying to analyze a problem. But now I'm like, well, if I could get that information plus every other bit of information I can think of that might actually help me inform the insight, then I want it all. And, and that problem, that problem continues. It's a, it's a great, it's a really interesting point. It's really interesting. Well, and also before we get into the other questions, human behavior also constantly wants to take advantage of more resource. So I use my example of back in the day when film could be developed and you would literally get charged per picture you took. Yeah. Well, you know, food picks didn't exist. Why? Because no one thought it was worth the 10 cents or whatever it costs to develop the film for one picture of food. Like no one took a, at a restaurant, took their camera and took a picture of the food. He's like, that's 10 cents. Like, I don't, I don't think that's worth that. Plus I'm not going to see it for a week. But now, now that it's less than 10 cents, it seems limitless. I'm like, Oh, I'll take pictures of my food. Now <laughs> <laughs> the selfie also didn't exist. We had cameras that were in our hands. We didn't take pictures yeah. of ourselves because we were like, Oh man, like that's a waste of 10 cents. <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So that, that's what's happening. The directors are shooting more because they can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just the volume of data that we're creating every day, right? Like, and there's a lot of people that track that and can give you better stats than I could give you off the top of my head. But when you look at that, just the volume of data that's being created and, and, and produced into the ecosystem and how much is traveling across the internet every day. And it's just, it's fascinating. It's a lot of fun. Plenty of issues in there to solve. Plenty of work to do. There you go. Joe, it is time for the lightning round. And the lightning round is brought to you by our sponsor, Salesforce Platform, the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Joe, this is where we ask you fast questions about your life outside of PricewaterhouseCoopers so people can get to know you a little bit better. Perfect. I'm ready, I think. Okay, Joe, it says very clearly, and you seem very proud that you're a Penn State alum. Yes. What was your fondest memory of being while at Penn State? Well, that, that's easy because I met my wife at Penn State. So I have, I have very fond memories of uh, meeting my wife at Penn State. So we'll go, with, we'll go with that. I'm curious if you're also a sports fan. I am. Why is Penn State stink this year? <laughs> that was such a harsh transition. Penn State doesn't stink. It's been a really hard year. And by the way, they've won the last two games. So 0-5. I think anybody can walk around in their Penn State gear when Penn State is a, you know, competing for the national championship or carrying a big 10 trophy around. But I was wearing my Penn state gear, walking in, walking in wherever I went uh, when they were zero and five, I think, uh, I think they're going to come back great next year. There you go. Are you a Philly native? I am. What's the best cheesesteak? Jim's on South street. I'm going to be in trouble with somebody for that. <laughs> hey, everyone's got their opinion <laughs> on this. All right. What are some key places that if someone's going to go visit Philadelphia that you would recommend they go check out? Ah, that's a great question. So there's a museum in Philadelphia that most people don't know called the Barnes Museum. And Barnes was a philanthropist. He started out in the um, pharmaceutical industry and he has one of the most amazing collections of impressionist paintings 
but the way he displays them, where most museums you go in and you go into the section that's got like the paintings from the 1700s, you go into another room, it's got the paintings from another era. He wanted art in context. So you'll see like a, you'll see like a De Gaulle sitting next to a Monet, next to a piece of Pennsylvania Dutch uh, cabinetry. Like it's just the most amazing experience. So I would say go visit the Barnes because it's an awesome, awesome museum. When you're not at PwC and not working on technology products, what are things that you're interested in? What are your hobbies outside of work? You know, we're, we are fortunate enough to have a place down in uh, Ocean City, New Jersey by the beach, which is where I've been holed up since the pandemic began. Uh, so I just, I love getting outside. I, I love getting on the bike. Uh, we love getting on a boat and getting out into the water. Uh, so I, uh, those are, those are things that I love. And, and in the days before the pandemic, I really love to travel. So I, I am, uh, I'm struggling my way through my travel withdrawal right now, but I do love to travel. Okay. Then we got to ask when travel restrictions are lifted and it's safe to go just about anywhere, where will you go? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually going to say London. Uh, I got some good friends in London. I've got some folks that actually are getting ready to retire from the firm that I'd like to go see. Uh, so, uh, that I've worked together for years and my wife loves London. So, um, you know, happy wife, happy life. We'll, we'll go to London first. There we go. Joe Atkinson, he's a man of art, he's a man of technology, he's a man of travel, and he will be in London when this pandemic lifts. And he says, Jim, Jim's on South Street is the best cheesesteak in Philadelphia. That's what I got. And of course, visit the Barnes Museum. Joe, thanks for joining us today on IT Visionaries. Thanks for sharing your career path and thanks for sharing your vision for the future. Thanks for having me. IT Visionaries is created by the team at mission.org and brought to you by the Salesforce platform the number one cloud platform for digital transformation of every experience. Build connected experiences, empower every employee, and deliver continuous innovation with the customer at the center of everything you do. Learn more at salesforce.com slash platform.